Hi, I'm Dale Sherbeck, and welcome to the HQ, a CHA Learning and Healthcare Can podcast serial where we dive into healthcare issues and topics from the perspective of its people and discuss them with those that are leading in the health system. Together, we'll try to unpack these topics and learn what actions are being taken to innovatively solve them today. Increasingly, hardly a day goes by where at least one mainstream media source isn't publishing another important story about the health and wellness of our health workforce. Headlines are replete with words like burnout, exhausted, beleaguered, and at the same time, we know that many, many health professionals are leaving or taking extended breaks with proclamations like, I can't do this anymore. Those in healthcare know this isn't a new problem, and it's not a COVID problem, but like so many things, the pandemic has certainly exacerbated it. Where there are many, ourselves included, working on different aspects of the problem, including how to bring more professionals into a system that is crumbling, others are focusing on how to heal and help those who remain. One of the words that holds a lot of focus is resilience. As defined by the APA, resilience is the process and outcome of successfully adapting to difficult or challenging life experiences, especially through mental, emotional, and behavioral flexibility and adjustment to external and internal demands. Again, the concept and the need is not a new one, as our broader society has been looking at how to teach and build resilience in all parts of our population, from K to 12 to high functioning adults. In short, we have long recognized this is the key life skill to being able to adapt to the real and intersecting stressors in life in our broader world. And the pandemic has only amplified this need, making it a critical commodity for our well being and survival. The harder question, though, is how do you build or rebuild resilience when you're already in crisis? To discuss this, I'm joined by Milena Bradachevic. Milena holds a PhD in Integral Health from the California Institute of Human Science. She currently teaches programs on building mental resilience in uncertain times and psychological safety in the workplace at the University of Toronto School of Continuing Studies. Milena has also delivered her programs to a number of organizations, including the Ontario Public Health Association, Workplace Safety and Prevention Services, and the Ontario Association of Social Workers. She has contributed as a speaker on mental resilience for the Ontario Society of Occupational Therapists and the first National Safety Council Conference on Psychological Safety, Valuing the Whole Person. Malena's mental health literacy programs have helped individuals at various organizations and educational institutions build resilient minds and reduce the prevalence of common mental disorders and stigma. Hi, Malena. Welcome to the HQ. Hi, Dale. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us today uh, to discuss a topic that is uh, certainly of increasing importance and on the minds of many. Um, so maybe if we could just start um, beyond what I've shared from the APA, can you share your real world perspective on what is mental resilience and psychological safety? Yes, sure. I can share my thoughts on that. So uh, the definition is not that far off. Uh, the APA definition that you um, you know that, that you just shared with us. Essentially, it's about the ability to adapt. So we are um, all experiencing a much higher degree of uncertainty and change um, in our workplaces as well as our lives. And so what we really need is to develop um, a sustainable way of adapting to those changes. Um, the changes are going to persist, they're going to continue. 
uh, we're living in uh, sort of complex times. So uh, mental resilience um, is about essentially uh, de developing this ability to adapt to a high degree of uncertainty and change. And um, in our workplaces, um, for that, we need a high level of psychological safety because we're looking at, you know, how do we create a sustainable way of uh, optimally working together? Um, and that's going to involve uh, creating an environment that's going to be safe for open communication, for our ability to define goals, to create new ways of doing things, and to really collaborate at a higher level. And that's certainly been challenged then when you've got a pandemic going on and there's all this unpredictability in our healthcare mm -hmm. organizations. Yes, yes. So maybe I can share a couple of things uh, as far as data is concerned. Like you said, we, we're getting a lot of data, but it, data by itself doesn't really mean much unless we're acting on that data. And it's mm -hmm. really important to act. So um, some of the recent um, data from Mental Health Research Canada tells us that about 35% of healthcare workers are experiencing high levels of anxiety. Um, and this is from a poll that's, uh, that was done uh, earlier this year. So if we have 35% of healthcare workers experiencing high levels of anxiety, that means that we're kind of beyond the clinical level uh, with this uh, high percentage of healthcare workers. And what that really means is that, you know, once we're experiencing uh, clinical level anxiety or higher, it means that we can no longer um, do things that we were able to do before. We can no longer function. We can no longer, you know, um, we really don't have the, the energy for our daily tasks. Um, so what we want to do is we want to reduce that and we want to prevent further um, escalation of those symptoms. Um, some other data that I have shows that uh, frontline healthcare workers are much more likely also to, um, uh, to report experiencing uh, post-traumatic stress disorder from the pandemic, um, while um, uh, about 10% of um, other can Canadians are experiencing some level of PTSD, frontline uh, healthcare workers are experiencing um, about 17%, so almost double um, se severe symptoms of PTSD. And so, yeah, so these, these are all very important um, uh, things that we need to address. Um, we also have a, a recent, or actually the first national psychological safety poll by Mental Health Research Canada, which tells us that um, while 35% of Canadians are experiencing burnout, 66% of nurses are reporting being burned out. So again, twice as many. And also, um, interestingly, interesting data says that about half of first responders uh, feels that their work is inherently including a high degree of psychological risk. Um, so we know that these are professions that, you know, are going to lead to more burnout um, and things like that. So uh, we need to um, have that in, in mind that this is kind of built inherently in this, uh, in the healthcare field. And that's why it's even more important for, for us to discuss it. Uh, those, those numbers are, are alarming, certainly, I think, at any level. Um, so, I mean, you talked about uh, prevention um, and mm -hmm. so maybe we could go back to sort of what 
I mean, how do you prevent something that's already happening, I guess, or where mm -hmm. do you sort of see the opportunity to intervene in this? Mm -hmm. So I think that overall, we need to have a prevention oriented way of handling uh, the situation. So uh, while, you know, for, for many people um, in healthcare and otherwise, um, you know, things are at a kind of alarming clinical level, we need to adopt a prevention oriented uh, strategy that's going to work towards reducing symptoms as well as preventing uh, further uh, recurrences of anxiety and depression. Um, so when it comes to prevention, uh, one of the things I like to talk about is neuroplasticity. Just mm -hmm. as kind of a basic, you know, explanation of how our nervous system works, it's helpful to know that um, neuroplasticity really speaks to this ability of our mind to adapt and to, you know, create new neural connections. So um, if we are, for example, um, starting to worry, if we have a lot of worrying thoughts and kind of fearful emotions, uh, because of neuroplasticity, the more uh, of those that we have, the more we're going to be able to have those same um, thoughts and emotions. So neuroplasticity speaks to our essentially um, constantly wiring our system for either, you know, worry and stress and tension, or for a more relaxed kind of um, state of being that's, you know, going to have some more positive emotions associated with with it. So because of neuroplasticity, both anxiety and depression occur in stages. It's mm -hmm. not that we have anxiety or don't have anxiety, we can have normal levels of anxiety, which, you know, is kind of normal for this time that we have some level of worry, or, you know, one day we're worried about something specific. But if we have chronic anxiety, if we worry every day and about many different things, then we're much more likely to develop clinical level anxiety. Um, and again, the, the longer we wait in kind of helping reverse our symptoms, the more difficult it will be because our nervous system kind of wires these paths very strongly, right? Um, so it's all about kind of becoming aware of, um, you know, what is my level of worry? Am I able to relax? Um, and how, how accessible is that for me? Um, and looking at, you know, helping ourselves early on. Yeah, because I, I guess what I reflect is that certainly for people outside of the immediacy of the, <clears throat> of the situation, it's easy for us to perhaps turn off the news to remove ourselves from the situation so that we're not being bombarded with things that would be um, adding to our anxiety. Um, though I, I guess I would reflect that that's a more of a coping strategy as opposed to building resilience in it. But for those that can't just turn the channel, right, or turn things off, um, mm -hmm. how, how do you, how do you, I guess, more actively or specifically go about building that neuroplasticity or the capacity of, of bobbing and weaving a bit more? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, you actually pointed out something really important, which is that um, the news cycle has been cited as the number one cause of increased anxiety. This this was uh, based on a poll done by uh, Mental Health Research Canada. So that's that's a good thing to kind of just notice. But uh, in general, you know, the question is, how do we build resilience? How do mm -hmm. we create both uh, physical and mental resilience? How do we improve on that? And the way I like to talk about that is uh, through something called heart rate variability. Um, it's a measure that many, many people might be already familiar with. Some smartwatches can measure heart rate variability. Yes, I've got mine on. <laughs> yeah, excellent. So, but uh, heart rate variability is a measure of time in between heartbeats. Mm 
And it shows us how quickly can we go from an active state into a state of relaxation. So how quickly can we switch? Um, and this is really controlled by our autonomic nervous system. Um, and what it shows is that um, if we have a healthy resilient system, um, our heart rate variability will be high. We will have high oscillation patterns um, and, and you know, we will have um, stronger cardiovascular system, um, better ability to get a good night's sleep and recover and recharge, and that will improve our cognitive ability as well. Uh, but if we have a low heart rate variability, it means that the state of relaxation is not accessible to us. Uh, it's gonna take a long time for us to be able to switch and again, this is something that our nervous system, it doesn't just kind of go there, it's taught to do that over a long period of stress, chronic stress, chronic tension. Um, uh, the state of relaxation becomes less accessible to us. Um, so if we have low heart rate variability, it means um, inability to relax, worsening symptoms of depression, anxiety, uh, cardiovascular disease possibly, and just again, lower resistance to um, both mental and physical stress. So one of the key things, and the reason why I like to use this metric is to really show the importance of exercising that ability to um, access a relaxed state. Um, that's called activating the relaxation response. Um, and what does that mean to really be in that state of, um, you know, um, health and where we can kind of restore and um, just bring ourselves to a calm and composed state. And there are also some ways to kind of improve heart rate variability uh, through daily activities. I, I would like to share with you um, that includes daily physical activity. Um, any kind of activity can really be good um, to improve our overall resilience. Also, um, finding a way to still the mind on the daily basis. Um, and that means things like removing distractions, you know, removing the news cycle for a bit, um, uh, you know, practicing kind of focused attention, uh, maybe contemplation. Also uh, making sure that we're eating highly nutritious foods. So nutrition is very important um, as well. And that we're reducing toxins or, you know, any kind of, um, um, you know, stimulants such as coffee and things like that. And then uh, spending time outside um, is really a good way to just naturally um, kind of rewire our system and, and our nervous system really responds well to the random sights and sounds in nature. So that's really one of the best ways we can restore. Um, and then being engaged in flow-based activities on a daily basis. So um, any activity that will have a process to it. Because again, we're kind of, um, you know, we need to, with this prevention oriented um, angle, we need to look at that things are a part of a process. You know, everything is going through through a process of development and change, and we are an active part of that process. Mm -hmm. So practicing this flow state will help us um, learn how to essentially respond when needed. Um, and that can be done through anything such as, you know, playing music or doing art activities or even things like cooking, you know, where we follow a recipe um, and things like that. Interesting. So... <clears throat> And I guess part of what I'm hearing from some of what you've described is that you're creating, I guess, some variability or randomness through these different types of activities um, or some predictability as well, I guess, in some of the flow-based things that you're describing as well, but that they, 
they are working different kind of muscles within us, I guess, that would perhaps we would use to, you know, to mm-hmm. withstand or, or or I guess by definition be, create resilience um, mm-hmm. so that if you if you practice being unstable more often that it makes it more easy to be to find your your footing again when something else pushes you beyond that mm-hmm. or yeah I, I like the way you put that because it kind of brings um, brings to you know, to light this fact that you know we are meant to be doing these things you know our body is meant to move so mm-hmm. we have to have that daily movement. Uh, we're, you know, we're uh, meant to have healthy, nutritious foods and clean air and clean water. You know, um, we're meant to um, have this ability to kind of still the mind, you know, um, and, and the fact that we're really being bombarded by all kinds of um, ads and information and social media um, is really kind of taking us out of balance. So by stilling the mind on a daily basis, we can just regain that um, natural balance that we really desperately need to be sustainably healthy. Um, and yes, it's kind of like, you know, understanding that um, life is uncertain by nature. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. in the past, we would kind of uh, typically worry about one uncertainty at a time. Whereas now, because of COVID, the level of uncertainty is much, much you know, higher and broader as well. Um, so, so those are some of the things that we can do. Um, but, you know, also I don't want to kind of undermine the, uh, system and the environment that we're in, um, and how much that affects us, right. We can't be the only, um, the only person kind of, um, doing these things when everybody else is kind of, uh, maybe going another direction. Sure. Um, so maybe you could describe a little bit in terms of the the role, I guess. So you, you're talking about this an intentionality to I think some of what you're describing here as well. So um, even though you're trying to simulate the randomness of some of these things, um, where is the role, I guess, of uh, conscientiousness sort of play into this, and and mm. where does that take us? Yes, yes. So um, this is a really good question because um, the healthcare field, you know, by definition has a higher degree of conscientiousness associated with it. Um, Some of the fundamental values of a healthcare worker include uh, things like commitment to integrity and ethical practice, commitment to excellence and justice in the healthcare system, and also commitment to, um, you know, a high, high level of empathy and compassion and respect for the people that we work with. So all of these are kind of trains, uh, traits of highly conscientious people. Um, and we have that trait uh, really dominant in the healthcare field. Most people go into the field wanting to really help, wanting to do the right thing, wanting to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we have a high degree of conscientiousness, um, that can be a very useful thing, of course. Uh, we can kind of uh, move ahead and, and help people and learn a lot of things. But um, we need to also be aware that um, people who have a high degree of conscientiousness are more prone to anxiety and depression if they're put in an environment where those values will be compromised, where basically they would not be able to exercise those values. Um, And, you know, usually uh, people with a high degree of conscientiousness um, are kind of perfectionist. They, They fear failure. Um, so if we put them in an environment with, you know, things like unreasonable deadlines or working conditions where they're burned out and, and they can no longer feel compassion and empathy, right, then we're essentially um, uh, 
creating an environment where they will uh, feel like they're failing. And so there will be a high level of high degree of, um, you know, people leaving the profession, which is exactly what we're, what we're seeing today. Um, I think some of the recent data shows that about a third of nurses in North America are considering changing uh, their, their jobs um, at the end of the year because of high levels of burnout and a high stress working environment, uh, which is really, again, what, what kind of brings that topic of psychological safety in the mm -hmm. workplace. Um, you know, if we have a high stress work environment, um, that means that, you know, we're constantly operating in the state of tension, in the state of fear, um, and that really reduces our ability to, um, to really, you know, be authentic and be creative and be innovative and really contribute um, what we can to the workplace. Yeah, that, that definitely resonates, Milena. And, and I thank you for that. Because I mean, I've been hearing more stories than I care to, uh, you know, from, from, you know, my colleagues and, and others within the health system, you know, reporting, you know, their, their own colleagues, right, chiefs of staff and nurses, right, who, who have broken down in meetings crying and like just emotionally distraught and things that they've never seen before from these people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and I think in one of the other um, podcast episodes, uh, uh, we were also having that conversation as well. And, and the, the challenge of, you know, you're, you have a calling, right? A, a true vocation of working in a field of taking care of people. Mm -hmm. And you can't do that to the degree that you feel, ethically bound or morally responsible to uh, that would that you know is being reported certainly as being highly distressful mm -hmm. um so yes yes uh well so, some of the uh reports i read were uh echoing that same thing uh basically um many nurses were reporting having anxiety attacks they would feel physically ill going into work uh, during the pandemic um, they felt like they were um, going off to war or prison when they were um, going to work um, and and you know th these are some of the statements that i've read mm -hmm. um, and for for some of these people really uh, quitting was the only way to um you know ensure long-term well-being and so we really, you know, we need to really acknowledge that situation and that um, this is, you know, definitely affecting um, our ability to have a good system. Yeah, well, I think, it, it, like I said, it, I think it builds empathy. I hope it does build empathy with um, our listeners in terms of understanding what what that psychological safety or, or um, a lack of safety might feel like for people who, you know, Feel like they can't perform their job um, the way they're supposed to, and how um, how that would so traumatize mm -hmm. one's psyche. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, maybe I can just give a bit more of a definition of psychological safety, and we can kind of go into it a little bit deeper. Sure. Uh, I think it's good to know that you know uh, definition is basically um, the definition of psycho psychological safety is that you know uh, when we are feeling psychologically safe, we believe that um, you know. Um, it will not be held against us so that we will not be punished if we speak our mind, if we are being authentic, uh, if we're contributing our unique ideas um, in the work environment, and also that the environment is safe for interpersonal risk-taking. So this interpersonal risk-taking means that we can safely voice our 
questions, our concerns, our ideas, you know, um, even if it doesn't agree with the, with the prevalent, um, you know, way of doing things. So um, that is really important because we need to be taking a certain level of interpersonal risk. We need to be able to, to uh, do that safely in order to deal with this higher level of uncertainty and change and, and complexity in our workplaces. Uh, but I think it's important that um, to note that uh, this will be really become, it's already becoming a key leadership skill, um, this ability to create a psychologically safe environment, an environment that's open for um, you know, communication for also expressing any challenges um, and also for discussing what are the opportunities uh, and maybe some concerns that, pe that people are having. Um, and all of this with the goal of learning, you know, quick learning and change, which is really what we're uh, trying to do and, and uh, growth as well. Yeah, and I think that there's probably a, you know, different narratives or stories that are going on here that through no fault of anyone's right that are perhaps contributing to this or working against them you know in dual purposes while you have some leaders who perhaps have a you know um gone into a kind of a command and control sort of approach to things of trying to keep everything together you know with their best intentions perhaps but that maybe doesn't create the space for those to take risks as well without repercussions, right? In that space of high degree of rigidity, um, yeah. that would be, that would play against that, I think is what I'm hearing too. Yes, yes. And that's a very good point. Um, oftentimes, you know, especially during these uh, very um, difficult past couple of years, um, managers had to uh, make very quick decisions and, you know, decisions that were maybe controversial and that were not easy to make. Um, and, you know, there's not enough time for everyone to be always informed about all the, you know, things that go into making a decision. But I think we can kind of, um, those two things can coexist, psychological safety and, you know, managerial, um, you know, um, ability to, to make those decisions. Uh, can go hand in hand with um, the ability of managers to kind of really show more appreciation, um, celebrate those achievements, you know, do things, really acknowledge things that are going well, um, and to really, uh, during this time especially, um, really go out of their way to, um, to really, again, you know, uh, show their appreciation um, towards healthcare workers that are really uh, doing their best. Um, also things like knowing that, you know, um, people need to be able to regenerate. Um, they have to have the ability to sustainably, uh, you know, come into work at 100% um, and really maintain that level of um, excellence that they're really committing to when they start the profession. So ensuring that people can take enough breaks, maybe that they have more flexible um, uh, scheduling that, that will be um, working better for them, um, and also involving them um, in decision-making in some way. This is going to be really important because I, I talk to a lot of uh, professionals and managers who um, really don't like to be blindsided by their people leaving, you know, by being the last person to know, mm -hmm. having a, a, you know, difficult time on their team. So uh, really 
you know, it doesn't preclude from doing these things like um, more frequent wellness checks, more informal um, meetings where people can really express what is going on with them in their life. And again, um, communicating about true plans and, and common purpose in the workplace and, and finding ways to involve uh, healthcare workers and staff in uh, decision making and governance. That's helpful and, and sort of brings me back to, I guess, sort of a next question sort of leading from that. So um, we're talking about, the, I guess, the role of leaders in this space and the changes that are happening. So, I mean, do they have a role or or perhaps more organizationally, but certainly it's exercised by our leaders in terms of, um, you know, the process of change and development and, you know, mm -hmm. policy changes and and things like that. So where does that flow into this or their responsibility or where do you see that sort of taking us? Yes. Um, so this is a, you know, a really long discussion. <laughs> we could talk about this for a long time. Um, I will not have a full solution probably, but, um, uh, but I did want to talk about something that I think is going on um, in the field, which can be, um, you know, addressed somehow. And that's this feeling of learned helplessness. Mm -hmm. um, you, you probably heard of that term before, yep. right? So learn helplessness is uh, basically a psychological term when we believe that we cannot um, have any effect or change our circumstances, um, that basically no matter what we do, um, we will not be able to reach that level of excellence that we need. Um, and then, you know, um, essentially that feeling of learned helplessness is based on prior experiences of having no control over a situation. And I think this is something that's happening uh, in our health, health, with our healthcare workers. They just feel like that, you know, um, no matter what I do, things will not change. And so as managers, it's very important to be aware of that. Um, and then to um, really understand that um, this is a trait of uh, pessimism. This is a pessimistic workforce that believes that, you know, um, things will be permanent and, and things will always be like this. And we as managers have a responsibility to create a more uh, optimistic outlook um, and to really, um, you know, find a way to address this learned helplessness by showing that, you know, these are the ways that you can make a difference. Um, these are the ways that you will be heard. Um, these are the ways that we're creating change. Um, and so creating this positive disposition, positive outlook, that's based on real, you know, implementations of things is going to be very helpful. So this is going to involve transparency. This is going to involve maybe a bit of a reduction in hierarchy because wherever wherever we have high levels of hierarchy, um, you know, we have low psychological safety typically because mm -hmm. we have fear of you know people who are superior to us. And what again psychology shows and cognitive science shows is that uh, if we're experiencing chronic fear, that will reduce our ability to think and you know act and be creative. Uh, we will be in this survival mode, uh, and again, we're going to be a lot more prone to anxiety and depression and and all those things and burnout, which we want to avoid. Yeah, and I, I can imagine like the, the challenge in this and, you know, because we hear this as well, right, and through our social media, right, that for many of these healthcare professionals, they have seen so much, I mean, these they've heard these stories before, like I said at the outset, this is not new and not because of the pandemic, right, so a lack of funding, a lack of support, a lack of 
so many of the number of resources that are necessary to support them in their roles is not a new problem. They've, you know, many of them have dealt with, mm -hmm. you know, zero percent uh, sort of wage sort of increases, and yet there's inflation going on. And right, so there's probably a lot of us and them sort of in this, and and then you have your leaders that are sitting in that space in between, um, trying to perhaps somehow. Um, protect, right, support their their staff and their colleagues, um, mm -hmm. all the while as the the system itself is, you know, the bad guy. Mm -hmm. um, yes, absolutely. Um, those are the things we need to be considering. Um, and, and regarding, you know, this process that we're in, we're in a process of change and development, even in healthcare, in, in the healthcare field. Um, so it's very important to, you know, as I said, Try to try to develop a level of optimism that things can um, develop for the better, and then uh, really work with what we have in a sustainable way, um, so that we can have a, a you know consistent policy change. Um, but for this, it's important to know that um, this um, sustainable change will require everyone's input. Mm -hmm. So everybody's voice is really important. Um, and I think for management, finding ways to really harness those voices to really hear what people are saying, and then trying to have reasonable um, implementations can, can be helpful. Um, but also, you know, I really like to put the control into the hands of the people when it comes to mental health and psychological safety. So um, maybe even just um, to help ourselves to kind of heal from this um, learned helplessness, we can think about, you know, how comfortable are we with interpersonal risk taking uh, or, you know, this really need to confront differences with others in ways that can lead to learning and change. Um, and I can share a little bit of a uh, maybe questionnaire with your uh, listeners um, to really reflect on, you know, how comfortable they are with this uh, essential skill, really taking interpersonal risk. So maybe they can think about how comfortable are they communicating their goals and achievements, um, mm -hmm. peers or their management? How comfortable are they speaking up or volunteering a concern to, um, to others or giving feedback to a colleague? Do we do that on a regular basis or do we kind of hold back? Um, also, how comfortable are we asking a coworker to clarify a particular point, especially in a Zoom meeting or, you know, in a conference call, um, raising a different point of view in a conference call? How comfortable are we doing that? I think a lot of people are saying, you know, when I have these online calls, I just kind of sit back, you know, and I... I, it doesn't feel like I, I need to contribute as much uh, sometimes, just even subconsciously. Also, how comfortable are we asking um, uh, feedback from a colleague on, on a report that we did? Um, and then, you know, admitting when things are kind of going in the wrong direction, when things are, you know, behind schedule or when, when things are uh, going wrong or some things that we're noticing. Because in the healthcare field, this um, issue of psychological safety and, and feeling that we can say what we think can be a matter of life and death. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, and oftentimes, um, you know, we hold back because of that um, really lack of um, safety in the workplace yeah we certainly touch on that very importantly in the context of our work in patient safety and the importance of communication to be able to speak up as well so yes if you don't have that 
psychological safety, it can have very real um, and uh, life and death consequences. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I, so, and I, and, and thank you for sharing like uh, some of those questions. So I guess my question back to you is that if I was to take that questionnaire and I would answer that I'm not very comfortable with many of those things, what do I do? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> so the, the question is why, you know, and then uh, we can have a longer discussion around, you know, it, how, how much of it is up to me, mm -hmm. maybe develop a little bit of more assertiveness, maybe uh, nonviolent communication, you know, style of communication where we can really speak from a basis of needs, where we can say, okay, I need this in order to have that level of excellence that I'm uh, really supposed to have um, and, and empathy and compassion. Um, so a part of that is our responsibility to communicate our needs in a non-conflicting non way. Um, and a part of that is, um, you know, the responsibility of, of our management to really um, see and, and check the level of psychological safety in their on their team. What sometimes is um, helpful to know is that, um, you know, different teams might have different levels of psychological safety. Um, also the organization as a whole can have, you know, a certain level of psychological safety, your team might be doing better or worse compared to the organization. I think those are some of the things that we can really look at and even anonymously just survey mm -hmm. as the first step. And then we can look at, well, what are these teams doing better um, where people are really, you know, feeling that they're they're safe to speak up and they're safe to um, really work at that highest level of collaboration, uh, where we're not afraid of failure, where we are, you know, learning together uh, from each other all the time. So we can do a lot to kind of uh, both measure and um, start kind of understanding um, our workforce better. Yeah, and that, that certainly is reflected in some of the other conversations we've been having around. Uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion as well, um, right? And I think, you know, that there's one is, I think, in your response to my question about what to do if you don't feel comfortable is one is be curious, um, ask why, mm -hmm. and then reflective, and there's that openness, to, I think, to sort of have that conversation with yourself or with the others that, that are part of your your mm -hmm. environment um yeah and maybe just kind of tying to that need for openness um you know we, when we talk about personality traits we talked about conscientiousness being one of them and and how cognitive science uh, tells us that if we rate high in conscientiousness we're at risk of higher levels of anxiety um but um the opposite of that is this um a trait of openness to experience uh where we are essentially open to different points of view, different ideas, um, and we are not kind of focused on things having to be a certain way. Um, and this trait of openness to experience uh, shows, uh, um, you know, lower likelihood of anxiety and, and depression. Um, and when we develop that trait more, um, our relapse rates are reduced, you know, we're not as likely that we're going to relapse back into high levels of anxiety. Um, so openness to new uh, ideas, new experiences is really key. And our mindset, the way we look at one another, the way we perceive each other is really important uh, in terms of, like you said, being curious and being open to knowing that other people will think differently. And that that's great. We want to find out how they're thinking, how we can collaborate instead of being in this fear mode of, you know, competition um, and things like that. Yeah, this has been very helpful. Um, 
So thank you for all of this, Melina. I think you've you know left us with a lot of um, you know positive um, approaches in the context of you know still recognizing that there are challenges and stressors and things that are going on here, but that you know certainly one of the messages that I am taking away from this is it's not too late, um, and so that even though you know we are in a crisis and people are feeling burnt out and they're feeling a lack of control and and mm -hmm. so many of these aspects. Um, that some of these skills and, and opportunities that you're describing can still be employed, reverse, protect, um, and that I think as well is that they will be critically important for that dialogue as we try to find our way through this and come out the other side. Mm -hmm. Yes, I hope so. Thank you so much again for inviting me and it's been a pleasure speaking with you and uh, yes, I look forward to staying in touch. Yeah, thanks, Malena. Hope we'll have another chance to do this. So wish you well and thank you again. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to the HQ and I'm Dale Sherbeck, your host. You can find this and other future episodes on the CHA Learning website, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think, so please follow us on our other social media channels. Thanks for joining us in this discussion today. Please join us next time.